my goal over the next uh, 45 minutes is to talk about the globalization of medical education. And I'm using that buzzword that everybody uses now, whether it's economics or whatever. Uh, but I think certainly there are a lot of changes taking place in medical education, and it's due to the global community. And I've had the opportunity of being in several different countries. And so what I'm hoping to do is to talk, just, just briefly tell you how I got into this, talk a little bit about what is globalization, what are some of the needs for medical education, just give you some examples of people that I know, and there are, I know there are many, many more people that are doing it, some of the opportunities for those of you in this room, and then what might be some of the preparation and the rewards that you could have. Well, I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and uh, although I traveled in the States extensively, I'd never really been out of the country. Because I, my exposure to medicine was veterinary medicine, I actually have a degree in veterinary medicine and practiced two years and then decided to go back to medical school, which I did at the University of Iowa and did my internship at Oregon Health Science University. This was in the mid-1960s, just as the Vietnam War was starting, and I ended up going into the public health service and was assigned to take care of Peace Corps volunteers in Kenya instead of going to Vietnam. So that was a pretty good deal. But it was my first exposure to over being overseas, and I really, <coughs> I really enjoyed it. I went back. I did my residency in ENT and chose an academic career at the Oregon Health and Science University. But I took early retirement from there in the beginning of 1997 and went as a visiting professor to the National University of Singapore. And when I came back, I got involved with what is now called Medical <coughs> Education International. And so some, a lot of my experience is through that. <coughs> so what is globalization? Well, this is the WHO definition. And if you just concentrate on the red parts, <coughs> it says globalization is the increased interconnectedness and interdependence of people and cultures. And it's generally understood it takes the opening of borders to increasingly fast flow of goods, services, finance, people, and ideas. And that this is going to require some changes both nationally and internationally. And there are a lot of macro forces that have contributed to this. One of them is that today's world is a global marketplace. And you don't have to look any further than today where we see the, what's going on in Europe and what effect that's having on our stock market here. And that's true in just many areas today. A lot of this is due to informatics. News, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And as you all know that uh, when the, all the changes that took place in the Middle East earlier this year, and we just heard it hour after hour on the TV. Informatics, uh, the, the uh, Facebook, uh, and all of those types of things that contributed to those changes in the Arab Spring. Language. Whether you like it or not, English really is becoming the lingua franca around the world. And that makes it easier for us. Uh, travel. Travel is so much easier now than when, even when I went to Kenya in the mid-60s. Uh, I don't know how much my air ticket was at that time, but I would guess my air ticket now would be cheaper than it was then. Another statistic that I just heard recently was that in about 19, in the late 1960s, they felt there were about 750 people that went on short-term mission trips. How many do you think there are they calculate now per year? Two and a half million. 
and they figure that that costs somewhere between two and four billion dollars. And if any of you have done any traveling to Central America or to Africa, I went to Rwanda uh, two years ago this past summer. And I would say that at least half the plane had T-shirts like this on, uh, you know, with uh, all these different groups going. And so it, it is, it's a big economic thing. So here's some of the things that I think about when it comes to globalization. I think for medical education to change, it's going to require in many countries an upgrading of medical facilities, changes in the way they do medical education, improvement in postgraduate or residency training, and then there's going to have to be some setting of international standards, both for medical education and for residency training. The big question is, who is going to set those standards? Being very American-centric, we would think that we should have pretty big play in setting those standards. It should be a lot like ours. But I don't think that's fair. But that is going to be a big problem because there's a lot of reasons for that. Now, I could probably label this actually the difference in medical education rather than the first world put it in North America versus the rest of the world. Uh, just the teaching methods are different. Uh, lectures versus problem-based type learning. These photographs were taken in Indonesia about four or five years ago when we were asked to take a team to teach uh, problem-based learning. The Ministry of Education had told them, it was a new medical school, that they needed to do problem-based learning. But they didn't give them any training on it. And yet I was surprised, this was their first year they had done it, these were first year students, and I was surprised at how well they had grasped the idea of doing <coughs> problem-based learning. The second thing is, most countries, it's rote memory versus uh, competency-based <coughs> education. Um, their evaluations tend to be different. A lot of essay versus multiple choice questions. And just as an aside, in the last year I have had two trips to Kazakhstan with doing workshops on how to write multiple choice questions. Now when I was trained to do this for our boards about 30 years ago, I had no idea that I would be able to use that in a mission setting. They tend to uh, do a lot of essays, although a lot of countries are now starting to do OSCEs. The other thing are the sizes of the classes, particularly uh, in China, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe. It's not unusual to have five to 600 students in one class with relatively few, few faculty. So what happens is that it's all done by lecture. When you get to the clinical years, there's very little hands-on. If any of you were at Kathy Welch's talk this morning in China, she mentioned the same type of thing that it's very unusual for students in these countries to really even touch a patient. Well, you can imagine. You've got one professor, uh, maybe one or two residents, and 60 patients making rounds. Now, if you're the student in the back, you aren't even going to hear them talk, let alone be able to touch the patient. Uh, so there's more emphasis on quantity than on quality. Some of it's financial. Some of the, some of the countries in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, uh, do it because they have people come in from other countries and they charge them, just like we do, a lot of money for, uh, for tuition. Then there can be a conflict between the Ministry of Education, which runs the training or does the education and gives the degree, 
versus the Ministry of Health that runs the hospitals. And sometimes that comes into conflict. So then there are different teaching styles. And we tend to concentrate on that, but there are also different learning styles. So these people who have come up through this system, they're going to learn better from somebody who gives lectures than from you and I who would like to do more interaction type of thing. There are language barriers, even though English is becoming uh, much more accepted. There's nationalism. You know, we think our training system is the best in the world. You know, most of these countries also think that they have a very good training system. Different value systems. Finances. People from countries with low economic, uh, for low economic reasons, want to move to a better uh, place. This gives them better opportunities. And then there's the little problem of corruption. Uh, I know in one country in Southeast Asia where I've heard from quite reliable sources from one of my friends. I've worked in Singapore and uh, one of my friends in Singapore that it's not unusual if you don't get a passing grade on an exam, you just go to the professor and pay him a little money and suddenly you have a passing grade. If you want a residency in internal medicine, listen carefully, medical students. If you give the head of medicine a new car, you have pretty good chance of getting into the residency. And so there's that type of thing around the world. Primary care versus specialties. Uh, a lot of countries, uh, primary care is not hardly even recognized. And that's changing, but it's, being, it's slow. In Africa, you would prefer to go into something like public health or infectious diseases. Why? Because you have a better chance of getting a job with an NGO, which is going to pay you a lot more than your government, Plus, you might have an opportunity to migrate to North America or Europe. They have the same problem we do with rural versus urban. Uh, doctors want to live in the, in the capital because that's where they can make the most money. Then there are the overwhelming needs in a lot of these countries. And then there's the brain drain. Now, if we divided the world into three levels of income, the most affluent one-third, which of course includes us, we have excellent health care. Whether you think you do or not, you do. Uh, we have excellent education. The middle third really wants to improve. And I'll use Kazakhstan as an example, as I've been there several times in the last few years. They really want to upgrade not only their medical education, but their residency training. The lower third also aspires to do this, but sometimes the needs are just so great it almost seems impossible. Now, I'd like you to imagine that you're a 19-year-old girl, you're eight months pregnant, and you live in a small village in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of uh, Congo. And if you don't know, that's an area where there's been a lot of fighting, a lot of people killed over the last few years. You're eight months pregnant, and you're really kind of excited about this, but there's a little niggling worry, because last year, one of your very good friends also was pregnant, had a baby, and she died in the process. What you don't know is that you have a 1 in 20 chance of needing a cesarean section. And what you also don't know is that your chances of where you live, that you only have about a 1 in 20 chance of getting that life-saving operation if you need it. That's an example of the needs, in, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa has 11% of the world's population. It has 24% of the global burden of the disease. And yet it only has about 2 to 3% of the world's health workers. 
And it only uses about 1% of all the money that is spent on health care in the world. So, they have medical schools. Why don't they have more doctors? Well, this is the reason. In Zambia, out of uh, the 600 doctors they trained, they were able to retain less than 10%. In Ghana, they lost 630 doctors in a 10-year period between 93 and 2002. Plus another 11,000 healthcare workers, which would be like nurses, pharmacists, physical therapists, etc. In a recent survey of Nigerian medical students, more than 60% plan to immigrate. And then, you know, this has been recognized, started to be recognized in developing countries, and the UK is a good example. They used to advertise for healthcare workers, particularly in Africa and uh, India, Pakistan, and so on, their former uh, colonies. But they've stopped doing that. And yet in 2007, there were over 17,000 doctors and nurses that joined their National Health Service. Why do they do it? I think it can be summed up in one word, opportunity. And if I reversed it and said, what would you do if you made less than $500 a month? A lot of countries, probably less than 300 Every day, you had to worry about the per- your personal safety and the safety of your family. The only job when you got done training was in John Day, Oregon. And I have to explain that to you. I'm from Oregon. John Day is a beautiful little town, eastern Oregon, kind of isolated. No doctor wants to go there. I think they've got three doctors for a town of maybe two or 3,000. Uh, so it's pretty isolated. When you go to work, a lot of days you don't have basic medicines. You don't even have the supplies that you need to do life-saving surgery. Now, along comes a recruiter from Canada or the U.K., He offers you a good salary, and he solves all these other problems. Would you or I stay? Probably not. And it isn't just your own uh, opportunities. It's the opportunity for your kids. And I think that probably drives more, uh, uh, more of them than anything else. So how can we use training healthcare workers in missions? Well, I think one of the things that we can do by training, we can multiply our own hands. Rather than taking care of, what, 20, 30, 100 patients a day, uh, if you train somebody to do that, you know, they're going to be able to multiply that. We have the opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ, both in our attitude, the way we treat patients, the way we treat nurses, even the way we treat the people who work in the hospital, the cleaners. The other thing that I think is very important, and we've heard several times already in this conference, is that we can teach medicine, but the nationals are going to know the culture and know the language, are going to be able to do a better job of reaching their people for Christ than we can as foreigners. And I think we need to keep that in mind. So, a lot of people will say, well, why not just do uh, direct patient care? Rewards are more tangible. Uh, Instant gratification. But... What happens if you have to leave? If you have family problems, if you lose your visa, who's going to do it when you leave? And I think one of the things in uh, in doing clinical medicine teaching, at least, is you can still do clinical medicine and get the instant gratification as well as train others. Now, I just took two teams to Kenya, and our host, Dr. Mahudia, who's in this slide, one of the team members asked him, what do you think of short-term mission teams? And here's what he told us. He said that for a short-term mission team to be successful from their standpoint, 
was that you needed to do training and education, that you needed to transfer skills, you needed to do repeat trips and then and start to train them. And he was coming from with MEI. We've done ACLS. We did ACLS, ATLS training for five years. And on the second trip, we started having them do part of it. And by the time we left after five years, they were doing their own training courses. And they now feel that they have trained over a thousand people, where before nobody was getting these skills. And so that's the type of thing that he felt was important. So I'm prejudiced. My career was in academic medicine and teaching. I think that's the future of medical missions. And why? Why be a teacher? Well, we have the opportunity to build into the lives of others. We can share our experiences, and we can leave something behind when we are gone, not just cure one or two patients. So who was the ultimate teacher? Well, I think the Lord Jesus was. And we can learn from his attitude. He had the servant attitude. But who did he teach? I like to liken, you know, the Pharisees and the lawyers we're kind of like faculty and senior doctors in the community. They know it all. They don't need to learn anything, right? Disciples, uh, they were like the residents. They follow you around every day and they want to learn all the time. And then you have the crowds. That's like lecturing to the medical students. And then you remember in John 10, uh, 20, Mary Magdalene called the Lord Jesus teacher. So what effect did healing have on the people, on the recipients? In Luke, we have the leper one out of ten returned to give thanks. You know, sometimes we get discouraged because our patients aren't very thankful. But I mean, even the Lord Jesus only got one out of ten that was uh, returned to thank him. And then uh, Paul, and when he healed the crippled man in Acts, the, he leaped with joy. In Mark 2, when they brought the man to Jesus and brought him and put him through the ceiling, not only was he healed, but his sins were forgiven. Now, I get this a lot when I talk about trying to recruit people for MEI. People say, ah, you know, I'm not a teacher. I don't like to teach and so on. But we're all teachers in one way or another, whether we like it or not. We do it by example, by modeling, by our attitude, by the influence that we have, and by demonstration. Now, you can be a negative or a positive influence, and we need to keep that in mind. I'm sure you can all think of teachers that were very positive to you and some that were very negative. So we want to be a positive influence. And we're going to be influencing a generation of young people. So what are some of the opportunities? Well, I think one of the things is even in creative access or closed nations like China, Muslim countries, and so on, if you're willing to come in and share your knowledge and teach, usually you can get in, maybe not long-term, but you can get in on short-term teams. And you can have either short-term teams, which I usually think of as one to four weeks, medium-term, two to 12 months, and then long-term, longer than one year. And these are just some of the opportunities that I have seen uh, and that we have with MEI. One of the things that has surprised me, we're getting more and more requests for medical schools for people in basic science. And when you talk to people who work in medical schools here that are in the basic science there's nothing in missions for me. That's not true. There are opportunities. For researchers, you know, I'm in such a specialized research branch, you know, nobody wants me on overseas. But there are also opportunities for them. Clinically, for students, teaching residents, 
uh, in both specialties and family medicine. The other thing is, and it's just amazing to me how in many countries, Africa, Asia, and so on, and even here in the U.S., there are a lot of new medical schools starting up. A lot of it is driven by profit motive, uh, but a lot of these new schools overseas have very few or inexperienced faculty, and so they're looking for people to come and help. Uh, They need help with curriculum and development. Uh, As I mentioned, problem-based learning was one that we have done. We have done ACLS, ATLS training in Kenya, uh, and then just lectures to national physicians to upgrade their care. Now, here are some individuals that I know who have used medical education. Jim Jewell is the gentleman here, uh, second from the right in the first row. He was a general thoracic surgeon, and when he was about 55, he retired and went to a small mission hospital in western Zambia. He was there for about eight years, and he was almost 65, and it was time to retire. And he was a little bit frustrated because he was having to do a lot of general medicine, and he wanted, you know, he was a surgeon. He liked to do surgery. But when he was getting ready to go home, his medical or his missionary board and the University of Zambia contacted him and wanted him to come and be a professor of surgery in the department. He now he will be 80 years old this year, and he and his wife still spend six months out of the year teaching general surgery residents in Zambia, and and they love it. Jana Bacotti is a general surgeon, trauma surgeon, who was at Emory, and she now is the chief of surgery at the Aga Khan Hospital in Nairobi. Now, I don't know how many of you recognize Aga Khan. That's a Muslim hospital. And here she is, the head of surgery uh, in this hospital. Bill Bevins was uh, an emergency room physician that went to Kenya with us teaching ATLS. He felt the Lord call him. He actually spent four years in Kenya doing mainly teaching ATLS, ACLS, PALS, and all the other ones that, uh, all those different types of emergency things. He was there for four years, and he has now moved to Kabul and is going to take over uh, the residency training program there that's run by In His Image. David Thompson's one of my heroes, and if you've been here before, you've heard him speak, and he's here this year, and I think he's giving a course. He was a general surgeon in Gabon, and he'd been there for about 15 years. He took this uh, little clinic uh, from a clinic to a full Hospital, And I can remember when I first met him in the early 90s, and he would come to the CMDE conference, and he'd talk about the only anesthesia he had was ketamine and local anesthesia, and he was doing general surgery. And he said he'd been there about 15 years, and he woke up one morning, looked at himself in the mirror, and he said, who's going to do this when I leave? He said, am I going to be like a pebble dropped in a pond? And after I leave, it all goes back to the way it was. And out of that, he had the vision of starting the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, which is training Africans in mission hospitals. And uh, we now have, I think, close to 40. It's around 38 or 39 residents in five different hospitals in Africa. Now, it isn't just medicine and dentistry. Paramedical people. Uh, nursing educators. We get, requ- we get requests for that. There's a big need for that in Egypt right now. Uh, village health workers, teaching CHE, things like that, if you've heard of that. Uh, there is a large organization in Portland, where I'm from, that does training for emergency medical technicians, EMTs, and uh, pre 
uh, I'm, I'm sorry, first responders. They have set up a whole system in the country of Sri Lanka and trained them to do this. And it's a Christian organization. Other paramedical fields, physical therapy, speech therapy, uh, occupational therapy, audiology, all of these are needs. I just had a team in Kenya where we did pediatric neurodevelopment. And uh, since I'm ENT, I gave a lecture on hearing and a workshop for that. But mainly, we had a pediatric neurodevelopment pediatrician. Uh, we had a speech therapist, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, and a teacher of special needs kids. And we were concentrating on autistic children, children with uh, 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 cerebral palsy and developmental delay. Something that I think is needed in many countries because these children are usually hidden off in the homes and nobody sees them. And so this was the second year we had that. So if any of you are in those fields and are interested in doing something, come and talk to me. So what about preparation? Well, I think one of the important things is that you need to get some kind of training and credentials. In the medical field, that means, means board specialty. Uh, if you're in like speech therapy, audiology and that, you're going to have to have at least a master's degree. You have to have some credibility to go overseas. Uh, I would encourage you to think about an academic position. That certainly helps in giving you credentials. Something I wished I had done was to take some education courses. If you have that opportunity, I would encourage you to think about it. And then take opportunities to practice. Uh, I know when I first started, well, when I was in college, the course that I hated the worst and was the most worried about was speech. And uh, it, it just takes a lot of practice to feel comfortable uh, giving talks and lectures. Some of the preparation you may need to do, some mission organizations are going to require that you have some theological or biblical training. Uh, I would encourage you to start off by doing some short-term trips so you have an idea of what it's like. Read biographies of missionaries. Get involved with your church mission board. Uh, and I'm speaking to the choir here because you're all at a mission conference, but encourage your friends to do that. Some of the cultural considerations, and this just takes a long time. I think those who have worked overseas, and there are several in the audience, I was sure would agree with me. And when I was in Singapore, I had been there for about two and a half years, and I, I remember going home and telling my wife, you know, I found this out today. Now I understand why they do this. And it, it's just a very slow process. And I think even after having worked there for 15 years, I still learn things. But, you know, as Americans, sometimes we have negative impressions around the world. And I think we need to remember how much God has given us. We need to be thankful. We need to be willing to share. And I think one of the most important things is that we don't have a superiority complex, which sometimes we as Americans can have. We need to have that attitude of a servant model to be approachable. Interact with students in classrooms and patient care. I can tell you in most countries, uh, or at least a lot of countries, in, at least in Asia and Africa, students don't talk to the professor, okay? And particularly when you get my age and you're a professor, students don't have any interaction. They're afraid to talk to you. And uh, so we need to overcome that. Those of you who are younger don't quite have that as much hang-up with that. Encourage them to ask questions. They're not used to asking questions. The students in Singapore used to tell me, Prof, they've taught us since kindergarten you don't ask questions. If you ask questions, you get... <laughs> Uh, push down. So don't ask questions. And it was like pulling teeth to get them to interact in a class. 
the other thing that's important, as I mentioned earlier, they get very little hands-on experience. So as we go, particularly students and residents, we need to give them uh, that hands-on experience, not just observation. The other thing that's important is that most countries are not taught a methodical approach. I come into your clinic and I've got a right earache. You look in my ear, you give me antibiotics, and out the door you go. They don't think about what other possibilities there are. And so just that methodical approach, particularly in family medicine, internal medicine, and so on, of working up a patient is very important, demonstrating that. Encourage the residents to ask questions. Most of the time the residents know if they ask a question, the case will be taken away from them. That happens here, too. Uh, Make friends of the students, residents outside the hospital. And then some of the rewards. Uh, We'll have opportunities to show grace, to show the love of Christ, uh, for students and residents are more likely to ask you questions if you're approachable. Uh, I think we have the opportunity of potentially influencing the next generation of physicians, not only for their medical knowledge, but their attitude. Just the way you handle and treat patients in clinic can make a big difference for a lot of these people, particularly for students. And then the last thing is modeling teaching as a worthwhile career. When I first went to Singapore, one of the residents said to me one day, he says, Prof, you have to understand in Singapore, if, if you are above associate professors, associate professors and full professors can be called Prof, nobody else. So I was Prof. So he said, he said Prof, why do you do this? He said, nobody in Singapore would do it. And I said, well, Roland, I said, I thought the Chinese revered teachers. Well, he says, you know, yeah, he says, we revere teachers, but he says, if it comes down to being revered or making money, you choose money every time. And so in Singapore, you know, people would, they'd get their training, they'd polish their skills a little bit in the government hospitals, and then out to private practice to make money. And that's what he was thinking about. He didn't have a role model as somebody who thought teaching was worthwhile. So I think we can model that as well. So finally, what should be our motive? I think our overriding reason is to show the love of Christ. And I like 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But I like that last sentence. But do this with gentleness and respect. I think even particularly when we're going to work in countries that are closed countries, that have a different value system, a different belief system, a different religion, we still have to treat them with respect. If you don't, you're never going to be able to reach them. So I think we have some time for questions. I was supposed to give you 20 minutes for questions, and I didn't make quite that. So we start with Frank. He's most senior, okay? (laughs) How do you teach people in Africa so that they don't just take off Well, so that's the big problem. Uh, And that's what I mentioned, the brain drain. You know, uh, I I have no answer for that. And the problem is, uh, you know, you can't blame them in a way, the opportunities that they have here. And that's one of the things with PACs. We recognize if you send somebody here to train in surgery, the chances of them going back to Africa are almost zero. And that's the idea of training them over there, hoping that they won't. So far, we've got a pretty good track record. Out of the 20 people we've trained, I don't think anybody has immigrated as yet, although one's pretty close to doing it. 
perhaps not training them to the level that they can really qualify in, in America, but training them to their own needs. My finding in Taiwan was that there's a lot of stuff we did and needed to do that wouldn't be applicable in the U.S. And you send someone to the U.S. and they're really not prepared to come back. Yeah. Whereas if you train them there, but if there's some way you can guarantee they can't pass the board. <laughs> You know, and and I, you know, and I agree with you. And we look at it, but we have to be honest. We're looking at it from an American perspective, and it was very interesting. We were just in October, uh, in in Kenya in October, and my wife gave a talk to the medical students, and she was talking to a medical student afterwards, and he was already planning to immigrate, and she said, you know, this is a Christian medical student. She says, well, why don't you stay and help your own people? Well. No, I can make more money in America. And so it, it's, you know, we think it's, it's hard, uh, but in a way, it's, it, you know, in a way you can't blame them for wanting to try to better themselves. And I don't have a good answer for, the, but... Uh, you know, Jim, I think one of it is, is they, need a, they need a balanced view of America. And I try to give them that. Yeah. You know, I, I try to make sure they know that there's a lot of downsides to America. Oh, yeah. You know, taxation is, a, is an issue. And, well, uh, and you know the, the crime rates. You know, many yeah. people don't realize what the crime rates are in the U.S. And you know, their yeah. chances of dying a violent death often are much greater in the U.S. than it might be in, in well, certainly in Singapore. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. I and mean, Singapore is not a problem because, and again, it's the economic thing. They most of them will come back. But as an example, we just were uh, in MEI. I think Sherry got an email from. Uh, Somebody who had immigrated here from Mongolia and wanted to get into a training program. There's no way she's going to be able to do that. You know, what they do then is they try to do a research and then sometimes they can get something. But it's very. I'm sorry, you had a question back here. My question was more you were talking about this, the cultural, like the, the culture of American medical education that we take into the zone. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good question, and I think, uh, you know, in Singapore, uh, I certainly had to modify, I, I mean, I, I tried to do more uh, small group uh, teaching, and, and what was interesting, in Singapore, they actually were moving to that model, uh, even though they'd already been, you know, a lot of rote memory in the past. Uh, I, so, I t- the, one of the ways that I approach it, like, for instance, in Kazakhstan, we did a workshop two years ago on U.S. residency training. They wanted to know how we do it. Their rector, what they call a rector, which is equivalent to our dean, had been to the U.S. and he really admired the system and he wanted to make some changes, which, you know, they really did need to make some changes. And then we were asked to come back and to do, we've done two workshops now on how to write multiple choice questions. Well, it turns out they write multiple choice questions, but almost all of them are recall. They don't do application type. But what I do in that kind of a situation, when we start out the week in a workshop, I make it very clear up front that I'm coming from an American standpoint, and this is the way we do it in America. It's not all, not all of it's going to work for you. And what we did in Kazakhstan in, in all three of those situations was we had a lot of built-in time for discussion, for them to discuss how they could apply it in their situation. And there were some things that they could apply and some things that they couldn't. 
One of the funny ones was when we did the residency training, I had one lecture on what's difficult about change. And so we were having a discussion about this. And so I said to the group, I said, well, and and these were all mid-level academic people from the eight medical schools around the country. So I said, what do you think your chances are when you go back of making all these changes? And they talked about the ones they wanted to do. They all kind of looked at each other. Now, the head of the department's not going to let us do that. That's the problem. It's the senior people who are hard to change. And the other thing about, I think, that you've got to realize about uh, medical education, the changes are going to be small and increment, and it's going to take a long time to make a change. But it can occur. And so, uh, and what other changes that I've made? <coughs> well, one other thing that I've had to realize in Singapore, when I went there, I was there full-time for two and a half years, one of the things that I helped them do was to restructure their ENT training for the country. Before it had been, each hospital had a little training program with no didactic teaching at all. And we made it a countrywide program. And, and my boss was very favorable to this, or otherwise we wouldn't have been able to do it. And he had enough political clout to be able to pull it off. Well, after 10 years, uh, and I was no longer working full-time, and he was resi- retiring as head of the department, uh, and we were talking, and he was feeling really badly because the younger guys were making some changes that he and I didn't necessarily agree with. And I realized, I said, I said to him, I said, Henny, you know, you and I have given it our best shot They've got to do what they think's best now, and you and I have to back off. And that's the hard part, is, you know, when you get invested in something, is to be able to back off and let the nationals run with it, because they're not going to do it the way you think's the best, but they're going to do it with what they think is, is best for them. Yes? One of the challenges for those who want to serve long-term overseas is the funding. Uh, and uh, I know our government, through uh, MEPI, has like $130 million for five-year project in Sub-Saharan Africa. And, of course, they are run by mostly secular organizations. But is there any way uh, CMDA, MEI can work with them and to provide volunteers? You know, uh, I, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, I, I don't run in those circles. And I don't, I don't have a lot of wealthy friends. Uh, and so, and, and I'm very poor at, at uh, fundraising. So, but it is a problem. And, and, and the other problem is that, like you say, the government organizations are a lot of times, you know, are secular, and they do not want to give it to faith-based organizations. Although I think there's a little bit of change in that. I can remember when CMDA started the Center for Medical Missions. You know, that, their idea was that they would be able to help uh, mission hospitals apply for research grants and for money in that way. And, I mean, they tried, and they just seemed to be blocked over and over again. And, I, and I, I, the, what you're talking about, I don't know. And I, I know you're, you're probably much more into that because you're looking at uh, doing that. Do you have any suggestions for us? Well, there, there are like 20 institutions in sub-Saharan Africa, and they're matched with the U.S. institutions. And uh, many of those who are working in that program are Christians. Yeah. Uh, and it's not a Christian program per se, yeah. but many of them are Christians they can work with. Well, you know, and, and that's very interesting because uh, if any of you that work in medical schools now, and I think I kind of mentioned this before, is that there are a lot of big-name medical schools in the U.S. that are helping start new medical schools, uh, you know, in different places. However, 
uh, uh, Duke started a new medical school in Singapore. Guess who's got money? Singapore. Uh, there is a new school going in. A, uh, and this is very interesting. In Kazakhstan, there is a new university. Guess who it's named after? The president. Uh, it's going to be all taught in English. It's going to be in the sciences, including engineering. Uh, and they're eventually what they're, they've, they've started the pre-medical program. And the, and the medicine is the medical school is actually going to be taught in English. And it's going to be on an American-style system where you come in with a degree and then go into medical school. And they are looking at the University of Pittsburgh or Duke helping them with it. So a lot of the medical schools in the U.S. are looking for places that they can do that. And so there are a lot of the schools that are starting in uh, Africa that are trying to tie up with medical schools. That, uh, I don't know, I think it's kind of... I don't think it hurts us uh, from a Christian standpoint because as they start the medical schools, you know, these medical schools here aren't going to put all those funds in there and they're still going to be looking for teachers from here. And so, like in Kazakhstan, uh, they were, I tried to help them recruit some people to teach to teach pre-medical students this past fall, and I'm hoping that will continue. And as the medical school opens, that we will have opportunities. Uh, I mean, we're going to be a small bit in the, you know, in the big scheme of things, but you know, even at that, if we can do that. Yes, ma'am. I'm with the family medicine residency program with the university here. Right. Not that I am aware of. You know, I think that almost, you know, that has to almost be done on an individual basis. And that, you know, that is one of the problems that we've already talked about. It's very hard. It's very, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons. There, it's hard for them to go back. And we have to understand that. They come here, and even for people who are from Singapore, economically very good, but it was very hard for them to come back and work back into the Singapore healthcare system. And there was one girl uh, who I knew who was here who had done an ENT residency. She trained, she did medical school in one year in Kenya, uh, I'm sorry, in Singapore, came to the U.S., got an ENT residency, did one of the premier otology fellowships in this country, and I knew she owed the government four more years. And if she didn't come back and do that, she had to pay $180,000. So I tried to recruit her for the university. And I met her here, and she told me, she says, you know, please don't tell the people in Singapore, but she says, I can't go back. She said, my friends, when I go back now, they think I'm putting on airs because I don't speak Singlish anymore. Uh, I, my, my, my English is, or my uh, accent has changed. If I come back, she's 30, 32, 33 years old. I have to live with my parents. And she'd been living here for seven years. Uh, she could probably have a car, but she said socially. Plus, it would have been very difficult for her medically because she was probably better trained in otology than anybody else in the country. And the one thing in Asian culture is you don't, you don't want to lose face, and so you don't let somebody who's better trained than you 
rise to the top because you will lose face. And that's the other thing I think a lot of times we don't understand. We've got to be very careful about that. Uh, and sometimes we don't understand those types of dynamics. So in my experience in, in Singapore was I found that the people who came for one or two years to do a fellowship, and we had a lot of people that did that, they could come back and do pretty well. But the ones who came for more than four years had a lot of trouble coming back into the society. Uh, and, and it wasn't economic. And so, you know, that's just compounded by people. You know, and, and so, you know, you come here and you train and you go back to Ghana, Kenya, or wherever. You aren't going to have the resources. You probably aren't going to have the equipment that you've trained with. Uh, and it's very discouraging. And so all of those things, you know, lead into the, the problem with going back. Yes? You know, it has, and that has made a big difference. But, you know, it still is a problem, not so much in the cities, but, for instance, our PAX residents, uh, we have problems with Internet connection. It has to be by satellite. It's quite expensive, and so there still is, is you know, a problem with accessing all that. But you're absolutely right. Internet, uh, that type of thing has made a huge difference. And so that, you know, uh, students can, can access a lot of stuff that never used to be available. You know, like, you know, when I first started going to Singapore, when I would go back for like a couple months, I had this great big plastic case, and it was half full of slides, which weighed a ton. Now, I have it all on a flash drive. You know, I mean, what a change. And so, you know, like, or like taking books over. Now you can, you know, you can do it on a CD or whatever. So, yeah, you're right. There's a big change. There was another. So, so <laughs> telemedicine. It's interesting. We were doing some of that in Singapore. We weren't at our hospital, but the big hospital downtown was doing it. Part of the problem for for me was I found it boring. But uh, it, you know, it does have a place. But the problem is it's expensive. And I'll give you an example in Kosovo. The uh, EU set up a telemedicine. Uh, they gave them two floors in the top of this building, set up telemedicine for the country uh, so that in the smaller towns they could have x-rays read you know, by the people here. And uh, <laughs> Bert's going to know what I'm going to talk about. Uh, and, you know, and they get contact there. But it was very expensive, and they didn't have enough money to run it. We went, Burton and I were there on a team, and for us to use their lecture room, they charged us something like $120 just to use their lecture room for one afternoon uh, because that's the only way they could support it. So it's very expensive for developing countries to do telemedicine. I mean, we can do it on this end pretty well, but on that end it's more difficult. I think it'll change, uh, and hopefully it'll change, but uh, I think it's going to be a little bit slow. And, and again, it comes down to economics. You know, the time is up. Uh, I, you're, anybody wants to stay behind and ask more questions, I'll stay here for a little while. We don't have anybody coming in after us. So thank you very much for coming, and I hope it convinced you to do medical education. Hi. I'm Mark Nice to meet you. Family medicine.